0: If you have your Bible, why don't you grab it and turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to kind of look at the Lord's Prayer again. One specific verse in verse 12, but we're going to read it all together and make our observations. So let's read together, starting in verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And and some manuscripts add this. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Um, If you have read Luke's uh, account of this prayer, you'll notice that he doesn't use the word debts. He uses the word sins. And we'll talk about how the the breadth of this idea, but if you just include sins and the debt that that sin creates, you get kind of the concept of what Jesus is offering us here. But I have a question as we start that I think would be important important just to kind of linger in your minds as we're talking. When you read verse 12 and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, which half of that verse stands out to you? It is, it, is it your debts or is it forgiveness? Which one sticks out? I think that will say a lot about what God wants to do with this, uh, with this reminder uh, today. Let me, let me suggest to you that I think there's a thing that should come first. And that is the first thing you should see is your need for forgiveness. The issue of your sin, right? It's true, and, and you probably know this already. Man's greatest problem is sin. Man's greatest issue is his need for forgiveness because of his sin. Let me me just suggest to you that this sin infects everyone, everywhere. The Bible has many uses of the word sin in Scripture, and so I I don't want to miss them because they're all kind of sort of part of our understanding of what we're confessing. There's a word for sin that's used to describe missing the mark, like falling short of of God's holy standard. There's a word used to describe crossing a line, like God establishes righteous behavior, and he describes law and sin, the sinful heart of man just walks right over that line. There's a word that's used used to describe sin as uh, total lawlessness, just outright shaking your fist at the heavens, rebellion against God, There's a word for sin used to describe a slip and fall. In other words, sooner than later kind of sin. Like I'm not planning to do it. I don't wake up with it on my agenda, but I bumped into it. I sinned because of the incapacity in me not to sin. And then there's this word that Jesus uses here in verse 12, the idea of debt, what you owe God because of your sin, right? It is the the consequence of sin, So that's what Jesus is talking about here. And it's true um, that every one of us, everywhere around the world in all time and places, know every one of these particular versions of sin because it's in us. It's it's all around us, right? Um, Those of you who are close enough to uh, the teaching of the scriptures, this word good news, um, good news, we talk about this a lot. The good news always begins with the recognition of that problem sin problem. Right? That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 3. How deep the sin is. That sin is sin is in us and through us that every man is a sinner guilty before God and everyone deserves the judgment of God. That is man's greatest problem, sin. If God is holy and man isn't and man is perpetually a sinner and God will deal with that sin by being the judge of that sin. That's our greatest problem. And if that's our greatest problem, then I would suggest to you God's forgiveness is our greatest need, our greatest cure. That is what Jesus is talking about here. And this idea of forgiveness is true in two aspects. It's true ultimately and it's true relationally. It is true as God is our judge and it's true as God is our Father. Paul tells us how God has judicially forgiven us. And you're gonna be, you'll remember this uh, verse, but it's magnificent. Paul said in Colossians chapter two, and you who were dead in your trespasses, in your sins, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all. All our trespasses, all our sins, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Just picture that. Every charge, every sin, every failure, every line, every place you didn't mean to, but you couldn't help it, every place you were lawless in your sin, every charge was nailed on the cross of Christ, and Christ's blood, his forgiving blood, covered those accusations. And that's that's the reality of this judicial forgiveness. To forgive means to forsake, to hurl it away, to put it off, to get total separation from. And that's exactly how God has treated our sin in Christ. That's how he does it. In fact, you're probably familiar with these passages when David was describing this amazing reality that our sins could be forgiven. He described it this way. So how far has God removed these transgressions from us? How far has he separated them from us to throw them off? And he says, as far as the East is from the West, so far God has removed our sins from us. The prophet Isaiah adds like lots of other word pictures to this idea where he says that God has taken my sin and cast them behind his back. I can't see what's behind my back. He says also in, in chapter 43, Isaiah, that God blots out our transgressions and he will remember our sins no more. He goes on to say he, he blots them out and hides them behind a cloud that he can't see behind. And Micah chapter 7 says that he will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. All of those, all of those prophecies, all of those verses are describing the way in which God has hurled away or put off from himself our charges, our sin. And how did he do it? <laughs> he did it by putting them all on his son so that when Jesus died on the cross, God was pouring out his righteous wrath for our sin on Jesus. And he imputes that sin to Christ, and we get Christ's righteousness, and we go free. We are made right. So, what do you need to understand about verse 12? What about this particular prayer for forgiveness here? Well, we gotta start with this. And that's why this whole setup was a part of this understanding. This verse isn't a prayer for salvation. This is not like suggesting that somehow God's got a deal, that if you make certain that you have no problems with anyone ever, then he will make certain to always save you. This isn't like a, I'm saved today and I'm not saved tomorrow because of unforgiveness. This isn't that aspect, it is not judicial at all. This is a prayer for believers, for God's children. That's how this whole prayer starts. Our Father in heaven. This is God the Father to God's children. That's who this prayer is for. And this prayer really is, at its core, a prayer for intimacy and relationship. That's what is being described here. And I got to tell you that this is the place where this prayer gets conditional. And maybe you'll understand this even before I say it. Um, If you and I choose, children of God, when we choose to harbor unforgiveness towards a brother or sister anyone, then what happens to dissipate is the closeness, the intimacy with the Father. In fact, the, the only place that Jesus offers commentary on anything he said in the Lord's Prayer, he deals with this issue. And he says this in verse 14 and 15 of the same chapter. This is what he says. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That is what he's talking about there. It's a conditional aspect of the intimacy of our relationship to our father. If you're going to sit there and hold all sorts of sin against others, knowing how much you've been forgiven and you're holding these tiny offenses against other people, your prayers will get awful silent. Let, let, let me show you a parable that kind of describes this scenario. And it's in Matthew chapter 18, And Jesus tells this story to describe the absurdity of what it is to be a sinner forgiven by God's grace while we hold offenses, tiny offenses as he describes them, against anyone else. That's what he says. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle one, he... one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, talent was a year's wages. So we're talking about 20,000 years of pay. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and a payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, one day's wages for a laborer, seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him into prison until he should pay out that debt. When his fellow servant saw what had taken place, for one primary lesson, but I think there's a secondary one that we'll talk about. And let's deal with that first one. He talks about the unforgiveness of the wicked servant after having received amazing mercy, holds his fellow servant accountable for such a small, small debt. And then he says, and his In his anger, his master delivered him to the jailer so that he should pay all of his debt. The word jailers also has another word there to describe torturers, that the master turned that wicked servant over to the torturers. And the reality of it is that this torture that that the master gave him over to was the self-imposed torture of unforgiveness. The reality of what it is to kind of look at the grace you've received, knowing that you're guilty of it, not extending it to others and laying awake at night and knowing it's you. It's sickness, it's bitterness, it's anger. It's like, I think unforgiveness at its core is an attempt by the person who's been offended to somehow imprison the person who's brought the offense. Like, let's make them pay. But little do you know that what happens is it actually puts you in prison. And I think that's what he's referring to, that the master hands those who won't forgive over to those who've, to, uh, jailers who, and the jailers here are the torturers who will bring that kind of self-imposed suffering to bring you to your senses it's meant to drive you to recognition that you have been forgiven much the other truth that you see here and, and let me just emphasize what i've already said so far is not that we earn our salvation god's grace is free we know that it's free but and this is the conditional part if we truly hold on to unforgiveness as described even in this parable um, there's a possibility if you stay in that condition, if you're unrelenting in your unforgiveness, if you never see a change in your heart, there's a possibility that you don't know Christ. It's sort of how it finishes. That in this idea that if that's how it goes for you, the Father will treat you just the same. You'll receive unforgiveness, exactly how God will judge you. But this prayer, and you've got to get this, this prayer is a prayer from God's children to our Father that recognizes that we sin. Every day we sin. And what Jesus is saying, bring that everyday sin to him. Every day. That word daily, I know we talked about this last week when we were asking the Father for our daily bread, but the word daily also applies to how we confess daily our sins. Right? And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. It's both and we collect daily problems that affect our daily intimacy and closeness in relationship to our father. The the consequences of unforgiveness is terrible. It traps us in our past. It keeps the pain alive. It would be like a sore that's always open. It will never heal. It it kind of produces bitterness in us. It's an infection that, that doesn't just affect us. It affects other people and every part of us. In Ephesians, Paul says that this unforgiveness is an open door to Satan. That's why he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger and give the devil a foothold that somehow he will continue to do other things that are against the will of God for you if you choose to harbor bitterness. And ultimately, as I think it's described here, it's a hindrance to our relationship with God. But the Lord's prayer that his children pray it recognizes the daily struggle with sin. It understands that. And it wakes every day and it goes to bed every day recognizing, I don't want anything in the way of you. I don't want anything stopping how close I can be to you. There's a a true story that kind of paints that picture for us. When Jesus is engaging his disciples, when he's about to wash their feet. And it's Peter who presi- provides the illustration. Perhaps you remember the story, Jesus stands up at dinner and he ties on the slave apron and he stoops down to wash his disciples' feet. And it was Peter, brash Peter, who stands up, not me, no, no, I'm not gonna do that. And it wasn't that he was resisting the washing of the feet, he was just trying to really impress Jesus that he understood the difference between him and and the Savior. But Jesus said, listen, if I don't wash you, You have no part with me. And Peter says, well, if that's the case, wash all of me. Wash my head, wash my hands, wash all of me. And then Jesus said this. um, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean. What Jesus is talking about here is, is this idea, the difference between daily, the daily dust of sin And the imputed righteousness of Christ, that that position where we stand holy and perfect before the Father. If you're clean, if you have been forgiven by Christ, if there is now confession in Jesus, you are not under condemnation. This isn't about earning your salvation. This is about the daily dust of sin. And all of us have it. Every day we walk into things and we have wrong motives and we have twisted thoughts We bump into people that are difficult to like and difficult to love, and we express those things. We use our mouth to condemn people and stories we know nothing about. We we walk around in worry and fear. What What a great season of our world to kind of see all the problems in our own hearts. And we carry that every day. And believe it or not, that left unconfessed will hinder your intimacy with the Father. So Jesus says that we come to him with our debts. And, and we clean up those messes and we forgive those people who have debts against us. That's a wonderful truth. It's a truth that we need, I think, in this season to confess Christ. It's also a, a great way for us to segue into the Lord's Supper that we take every week together. Um, we've talked about how we stand before the Father clean and perfect because of the work of Christ, and that is exactly the picture that Jesus painted when he held up a common loaf of bread and a cup of wine. At the Last Supper, he took that loaf of bread and broke it and said, this represents my body, which is broken for you. And I'm, again, I've said this before, but I'm not certain the disciples understood everything he was talking about. But you and I, we've read the story. We know what that means. That the Savior put himself in the pathway, not only of physical harm being pulverized, but he put himself in the way of the wrath of God for us. And then he held up this piece of bread and said, eat this in remembrance of my broken body for you. So church, let's eat together. After supper, he took a, a cup of wine and he said something pretty amazing. He said, this cup represents the, the covenant of grace in my blood. The difference between law that means you have to be perfect and climb a ladder and satisfy God and never fail, the law, religion, that's not how this works. Sinners need grace. Sinners need mercy and forgiveness. And in Christ, it's full and complete. And so when Jesus handed around the cup to drink, he said, remember, it's grace alone, in me alone. So let's drink to remember Let's pray. God, we are so thankful, first of all, for this ultimate forgiveness that we know in Christ. As sloppy, as messy, as imperfect and, and failing as we are, we believe what you have said. Nothing will separate us from you, your love. Nothing will snatch us from your hand. There is no longer any condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus because we are covered by the righteousness of Christ. So we want to say thank you for that. But God, we do see and we sense our own inability to love and forgive like you do. And there's probably right now in in the hundreds of people that are listening and even in my own heart, faces, names, people, situations that pop up where we haven't dealt with places of unforgiveness. God, let us be soft to your spirit as he points those things out to us. Let us confess those things and let us us use the forgiveness we receive from you to be the motivator, the driving driving factor behind all of our uh, forgiveness in in the people's lives that we know. So God, we love you today and every day because of the work of Jesus for us, we pray in Christ's name, amen.